Persia Gambles is a friend and coworker of mine, but most importantly, a proud Texan. I'm Still Here is a memoir from Austin Channing Brown about what it's like to grow up in majority white areas as a black woman. Specifically, Brown gives wisdom toward how organizations and people can truly embrace diversity and unity as more than just a surface level value. Persia and I discuss the impactful story and unpack the different and unique ways that the book was valuable for her as a black woman and I as a white man. This episode was recorded on May 18th, 2020. Hello, Persia. Hey, Davis. <laughs> How are you doing? I cannot complain. Just uh, here in Texas with my land. <laughs> what more could you ever need? Exactly. And by land, I literally just mean my backyard. So That's more than uh, me and Taylor have. We have a single-bedroom apartment. I have no, no land on all the planet to call my own, mm. which is well, kind of a sad I've, thought. Well, but I feel like there's enough, um, there are enough cornfields that if you just like <laughs> placed a flag in one of them, I don't feel like it would go contested. Like, I feel yeah. like they'd just be like, oh, that that's his now. Okay. <laughs> I think you could like post up in a cornfield for a, at least a couple of weeks before somebody would realize you're there. Yeah. And then you and just it, find it, a different one. Yeah. It'd just be like, oh, okay. I'll just, I'll move to the right a little bit. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. I can hear uh, I can hear birds. I think in Texas, what a beautiful yep. that could be a song. Dang, I bet that is a song somewhere. <laughs> George Strait, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe introduce yourself to who whoever would be listening to this podcast. So your name's Persia, and that's all I'm going to say. You can take it from there. Okay. Um, I am Persia Gambles. I work for Cornerstone Church. Um, I work for Salt Company there, which is a college ministry associated with Cornerstone Church. And um, I actually am from Texas, but because of coronavirus and like social distancing and stuff like that, um, my bosses let me, you know, social distance from home. And so I've been here for the past eight weeks, um, and that's been really, really good. Um, let's see here. I like almond milk lattes, Whoa. ice preferably. Yeah. Uh, don't, not really about that hot latte life. Um, <laughs> and, hmm. Ooh, I really, really love Rascal Flats, but I also really love Drake. Oh, wow. Very similar, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Obvious. Same <laughs> plane of influence. Wow. An audience. Can I get your official response to a tweet that I saw about a week ago amidst all of this coronavirus? The tweet said this. Uh-huh. I'm starting to think that life isn't really a highway after all. <laughs> what, as a Rascal Flats fan, do you think about that? You know, I think that's a very uh, necessary statement. But also, you got to cut the flats some slack <laughs> because... They couldn't predict a pandemic. They're <laughs> they're they're great men, but they're merely men. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's that's a very thorough response. I'm very thankful. Heck I was yeah. I was pretty unsure of how to think about that tweet, but I feel a lot of clarity after that. You know, see, this is why you come to people within the church for matters like these, <laughs> you know, because we help make clear what is Perfect. muddy. 
Um, yeah. So to connect the dots a little bit for a listener, I also work for Cornerstone Church with Persia. That is how we have become friends is through work. Um, which is not, the church is not in Texas. It's in Iowa, but like Persia said, she's down in Texas. Um, so yeah, we, just in case you were listening and you thought this man makes a living off of a very, uh, mild podcast. That is not the case. <laughs> we work together at a church, but yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. We haven't seen each other for like two months now because yeah. of coronavirus. So one day. Dang. That's so true. Like literally like we are friends and we're coworkers, mm-hmm. you know, but it has been legitimately almost a, a fiscal quarter. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yes. Well, Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast, Persia. Heck yeah, thank maybe, you for asking me. Oh, of course. I uh, Maybe say like, where would you rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10? Well, no. Uh, what's the best way to ask this question? Would you say you read books as much as an average person or above the average mm-hmm. book reading or under or below average? Yeah. All of those sentences form the question. I I would say I read more than the average person. Um, I uh, the type of person I am. Um, if anything piques my interest in any type of way, I instantly have to know everything about it. And there are times when that's really real. That's a really helpful attribute. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the other like ninety five percent of my life. It is not because I legitimately have a serious sit down conversation with someone um, at least once a week about the OJ Simpson trial of 1994. (laughs) And I mean, like, like bring out points. Like, well, if you think about the fever pitch that 1992 was walking into the trial, like in in this person, like, you know, those memes that it says like, no one, not a soul, you know, and then below that, it's like Mark Furman was totally, you know, that is me, but that's me about so many things. That's just the thing that I, I probably study the Mm. most. That's not, that has nothing to do with my job. And, um, so yeah, I would say that I read a lot. Thanks for clarifying that OJ Simpson has nothing to do with your job at a <laughs> church in Iowa. <laughs> That's that is a, a wild fact about you. I don't think I knew that till a couple weeks ago. But yeah. um I have read that book, the If I Did It book. Mm. Very fascinating. I would That's I would true. open up that can of worms, but I don't <laughs> know if we'd probably lose track of time. It maybe, would have to be at least day. a three-parter. It would. We'd have to. <laughs> we'll be like, all right, we'll be back on a trial <laughs> we'll from over twenty-five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but we we'd reach some type of audience. Like there would be would. someone. You have to know. There's like, a lot of people out there that feel as strongly as you. There's probably exactly. a Facebook group for that. Dang, there probably is. Dang, OJ. <laughs> Not talking about if he did it, but just really interested about <laughs> what what all happened. Yeah. Wow. And there's the great FX uh, re- yes. recreation of it with Ross from Friends and uh, whatever her name is, Marsha Clark. She went on to become yes. decently famous. She really did. Like she became like a um, a commentate a commenter mm-hmm. person on ET Entertainment Tonight. And no like, way. 
Yes, wow. she like became famous in her own right. You're right. And also, who would have known Dan, Dan David Schwimmer would have been such a good serious actor? Yeah, you know what I'm true. saying? Like, wow. Ugh. Quite a quite a guy, David Schwimmer. Thank you. Well, okay, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's a that's a good uh, tangent. Maybe give us the uh, give us the book you've chosen to talk about today. And then I will yes. rattle some quick facts from Amazon.com. Lit. Okay. Uh, the book that I chose was I'm Still Here. Uh, then there's like a semicolon, but it's I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. Yes. It was a great book. So, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I texted you like a week ago. And that was one of the books and read it uh, in the past week. And I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, before we get into it, I'm going to rattle some quick facts, as previously mentioned. Mm-hmm. I'm still here, like you said, by Austin Channing Brown, uh, published in 2018. So just two, ooh, it was two, two years ago yesterday, May 15th. Wait, no, that's not yesterday. That was three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. All, all the days really do run together. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. Two years ago in May. So same thing. <laughs> um, let's see. There's some great reviews. Jen mm-hmm. Hatmaker, Lecrae. Yeah. Publishers Weekly. Um, here's the, I'm going to give the one-sentence Amazon summary, and then we can unpack a little bit of what actually goes down in the book. What? The one-sentence Amazon <clears throat> pitch says this. From a, from a powerful new voice on racial justice, an eye-opening account of growing up black, Christian, and female in middle-class white America. Mm-hmm. That's pretty uh, good summary, in my Heck opinion. yeah. Uh, yeah, the book's 192 pages, so it's a not a short, short read, but not a long read. True. Um, pretty great. Uh, I'll do a little bit of a as short of a summary as I can, while also giving the book justice, and then um, I'll check in with you if I left anything out. Sound good? Sounds good. Sounds good. So, yeah, so I think most of the book um, is a memoir. Uh, about Austin Channing Brown's life, kind of, and um, it starts when she was younger, goes through her time in high school and college and her early workplace experiences, and she kind of uses her own uh, journey of discovery about race to teach the reader kind of the same lessons she was learning. Um, What's kind of unique about her background and a unique perspective from her is she grew up in majority white schools as a black person and oh yeah, and churches and kind of all the organizations she was around, I guess. Um, and as the subtitle says, it, she describes it as like a world made for whiteness. Um, so that led to obviously a lot of <clears throat> her discoveries and a lot of how she understands race. Um, and so then after college, she starts working with organizations and churches, um, doing a lot of classes and workshops to help people understand what it really means to be um, a diverse organization, an uh, organization that's united. Um, mm-hmm. And she shares a lot of firsthand um, hard stories about some of the just terrible ways um, that white people in particular have responded to a lot of those classes. And mm-hmm. um, so then, yeah, so a lot of the book's kind of like a memoir about those things. And then I think, yeah, the last couple chapters, I feel like it kind of turns toward the reader a little more and um, talks, looks forward to the future, casts some vision, talking to 
kind of your average white middle-class person and giving some wisdom as to what they can do to respond better than the other people that Austin has worked with. Um, sure. And then it wraps up. I thought the last chapter was pretty powerful, a chapter called um, Standing in the Shadow of Hope. And mm-hmm. it was a really interesting look at hope um, in particular. And she states pretty bluntly that she doesn't feel like there is a lot of hope um, mm-hmm in the area of racial reconciliation. And she thinks, you know, the title comes from, like she says, I think in a few generations, I I think there might be hope then, but right now we're, we're in the shadow of hope. And so we're working toward having hope one day, which as, um, as somber as that kind of sounds as a conclusion, I felt like it really tied it up well and, um, gives like a reality of where we are, but also points, to the direction that she thinks we can go. And so yeah, that's my little summary after reading it a couple days ago. Thought, did you, that was great. Did I read the right book? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what if I was like, no, this was about a bookstore in Maine. <laughs> like I don't, it was, we uh, just have to talk about that one. <laughs> Man, no, that you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Same. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that was a really astute, uh, wow. summer, summarization. Good job. Wow. If you could just email my English middle school teachers <laughs> and let them know. That's great. Anything you'd, you'd add or even, um, yeah, certain aspects of her life or anything that yeah. you think would add? Yeah. Um, I mean, for real, the reason I picked it up, two reasons. The, re- the reason I even, you know, or not even picked it up, but like clicked buy on mm-hmm. the Kindle app, you know, <laughs> was because I found out that she was a black woman. I found out that she was a Christian and I read, um, I think it was, I I genuinely think it was Lecrae's review of this Mm -hmm. book and, um, you know, the astute theologian Lecrae. And I, uh, instantly knew like, even if I don't agree with everything she, she wrote and I'm not saying I do or don't, but even if I don't agree with everything she wrote one way or the other, this is someone I need to hear from. Mm someone I need to learn from. And so, um, read it about, about a year ago and then reread some parts of it recently, like because of things going on in the, in the news, unfortunately. Mm. And, um, man, like I, I, I think that her, like Austin, um, I literally, I've stopped myself from saying her full name, but Austin's, um, voice in in terms of racial reconciliation, but then also what it looks like to be a Christian in predominantly white evangelical spaces Mm -hmm. um, is a very necessary one. And I say that personally, being, you know, a black woman in a particularly white evangelical space, both both before I moved to Ames, like here in Texas, and um, after coming on staff at Cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, I think she, she, tackles the topic very boldly in a way that even myself included, like, uh, we're fearful to, Hmm. you know, and and I'm not, I'm not too sure if that's a unfounded fear or not. Um, but yeah, I, I really loved the book. There were certain, there were certain chapters within it, like that we'll, we'll talk about hopefully, um, where I legitimately felt like she was talking to me, you know, like it, 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 it just felt that tangible um, to my life and what it's been like, what it is now, what it probably will be. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's that's great. I think um I think all you're saying is like spot on with kinda how I read it too was it felt like there were parts of it that, that felt like written to me. And I mm-hmm. think like you were saying, um, where whether or not you kind of agree or disagree with certain things, it seems like her goal was more to provide perspective than yeah. to provide like answers. And I mentioned to you, I, I just recorded an episode about um, Between the World and Me by mm-hmm. Tanahisi Coates. And it felt yes. very similar to that in the, the, uh, the way that it wasn't about like, hey, I'm an expert on how we can solve this. Here's some answers. It was more like, I just want people to realize the reality that we're currently in. And then once we all kind of see that, maybe we can go from there. Um, Heck yeah. But yeah, I, I think maybe to start, because um, I feel like we could roll into a million conversations here. Give us, uh-huh. give me and the whoever is listening to this a, a pretty um, maybe short idea on why this book ended up ranking so highly for you. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was good hearing about where you kind of came at it from. Uh, yeah. A year ago, maybe say why when I texted you, like, hey, what's your favorite book? You yeah. were like, this one. Yeah. Um, dang, that's a good question. Um, I, I think, honestly, just like how closely I related to so many of the things mm-hmm. she said um, about her life. Like, starting, you know, when she was seven and went mm-hmm. to the library and got, like, a lot of books. <laughs> um, I remember being a fourth grader at the the school that I went to. And at the time it was a predominantly um, black school um, in, in Lubbock. And I remember getting um, quite a few books from the school library and the librarian legitimately like chided me or like kind of roasted me for like, you know, saying you're not going to read all those books. You're just getting them to like make a show or whatever. Mm. And I remember thinking like, even if that's true, shouldn't you be in, like, isn't it your job to encourage children to read? Like, wow. I, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a front. Like I just really like to read. And I remember thinking, but I, but even at that age, I remember thinking, no, that's like, you're like the one book, the one mandated book for someone in fourth grade, that's your ceiling for a lot of black children, wow. you know? And the thing was, she was black herself. So it was, not only was it a race thing, it was a generational thing, mm-hmm. you know? And so that was something that I, that was super tangible to me. Yeah. Um, and then just talking about what it is like for her in her like everyday work day. Oh my gosh. Like mm-hmm. it, uh, fam. And, and she speaks about it way more candidly mm-hmm. than I, that I do yeah. or, or have, but, uh, yeah. Hmm. So you feel like yeah. most of the stuff that she was talking about, could you relate to like pretty much all of it? Yeah. Aside from wow. the genuinely, aside from being like a mom, cause I don't, I don't mm-hmm. have any kids like that. Not like that. I just don't have any children. <laughs> um, I, I either directly empathized or was able to kind of like second person empathize, like something I've seen my mom go through or my cousins or, you know, friends. Um, and I think that there are very few black female Christian voices that Mm -hmm. speak about, Hey, it's, it kind of sucks being black sometimes Mm -hmm. a lot of the time actually. Um, and yeah, it just, 
it really feels like um and even though it's a, it's a it's a short book it's it's 185 pages like it really feels like a, a breath of fresh air because mm. I, if if i want to find something that helps affirm to me um that being who i am where i am a black woman in america is hard i as a Christian, that's a that's a near impossible feat a lot of the time, wow. um, because I'm either going to find someone who's black, American, and not Christian, um, or someone who's or, or a female who is black and like Christian, but like does not want to talk about mm. their blackness, does not want to talk about the ways that race is hard, you know, wow. um, and that's a pretty that's something that I struggle with often myself, you know, and so mm -hmm. for her to like take this step of what I feel like ultimately is Christian obedience and, and just voicing honestly what her life has been and what mm -hmm. she hopes will happen. Um, I think she, she's provided a lot of room for, for healing, a lot of room for open and honest conversations like these yeah. to happen. Um, wow. Yeah. That's cool. I'm, I'm kind of curious. So, cause I, um, my perspective reading the book, obviously pretty different. It was like, I couldn't relate to her her life experiences um what do you mean davis <laughs> <laughs> well, well i'll say that in one sense um this is the last time i'll mention between the world and me that's another episode but one of the eye-opening things that me and my friend nick who is another white male um oh. thought about that book was he is he's not um in majority white organizations areas as oh, he grew up okay. and so it was incredibly helpful for me and nick because we said that it felt like we were reading a book about a different country or like a fictional mm. story that, that we'd like would never just walk into those circumstances, but it was eye opening mm. to say, Oh wait, these are right, you know, down the road yeah. from us or down the street, whatever. But this one was different and complimentary in the sense that she grew up in like majority white areas and mm -hmm. I could actually see myself like in the classrooms. It was like, that yeah. sounds like my high school. And so yeah. I felt like I could learn, but different from you, I wasn't like relating to her feelings, relating to her um, experiences in the sense. So overall the book felt like a learning experience. Like I feel like afterwards I felt like I had gained um, perspective. So I'm curious um, for you as a reader, mm -hmm. um, if you, if was it like more kind of like you were saying, just affirming or what, did it feel like you had, you were like gaining perspective or did it feel like more it was um, kind of just like, oh, I'm glad this voice is here. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it, it was both those things. And then it was also like it, it was deeply encouraging cause, because of like the mindset that I have, like, I immediately thought, oh, like, she's a few steps ahead of me. Hmm. Like, she's older than me. She's definitely been in, like, the working world longer than me. She's married. She has a kid. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm seeing someone, I'm seeing some sort of blueprint to not be, like, in my 30s and not lose my mind. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, <laughs> like some sort of, some sort of blueprint how to keep living, keep trying to trust God, keep yeah. trying to um, fight for blackness you know mm -hmm. in a world where it could easily be taken over by assimilation you yeah. know like and and this is not you know any any sort of slight to anything or anyone other than the fact that it is just hard to be black sometimes yeah. and 
so so I thought it was overwhelmingly affirming. Um, definitely like, oh, I'm so glad this mm-hmm. this book exists. But then it was also just like, okay, like I see someone a few steps ahead of me who at least has found a way to not only cope and survive in America, but to to thrive to a degree, you know. And so, yeah, that's, yeah. Cool. that's cool. I think, I mean, even if it was just a book that said to you like, hey, here's a voice, no new information for you, but now you know there's a voice speaking out about these things. Yeah. I feel like that would be a positive thing True. overall, but that's cool that, you know, she's a couple steps ahead of you and able to point some wisdom to you even. Um, Heck yeah. As if you have any wisdom to gain. <laughs> I'm going to tell my mom you say this. Like <laughs> people sometimes say these really encouraging things like, Oh my gosh, like you're, you're really knowledgeable and wise. You know, my mom's just like, Okay, but like, can you empty the dishwasher? Like, I don't, I don't really, I don't get that same vibe. Like, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah. mom, thanks. Yeah, feel free to let her know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, is there any is there any part of the book in particular that stands out as like a favorite or um, yeah. a chapter that you particularly recall? Yeah, um, I think the one that keeps playing in my mind. Eat, maybe not even when I read it or when I reread it, but because of recent things in the, in the, in the news, Mm -hmm. um, is the letter to her son, like the chapter that's like a letter to her son, Mm -hmm. because it's such a, such a, um, it's written with such a tone of honesty, um, and love and affection, but also fear, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and sober mindedness, knowing that, you know, I think she wrote this either right after having her son or right before, like, I mm-hmm. think she was like, you know, right before giving birth, like, yeah. um, and, and she's saying like, I'm birthing this child into a world that will hate it because of his skin, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, every, I mean, I don't say this empathetically, but I say it, you know, sympathetically, um, every black mother has had that type of realization, whether they mm-hmm. can articulate it or not. Um, they have had that same type of what kind of world am I bringing my son or daughter into, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, various shootings that we have seen yeah. throughout even the past year, you know, um, have proven that like, it's not a safe one, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a safe world that, and, I, and don't get me wrong. I mean, that's true for anybody. Anybody can get, shot and killed it's just it's happening at an alarming rate for innocent black people Mm -hmm. um and so i think that i think because of the tangible like pointedness of it um because of things going on right now i think the letter to her son was was super Mm -hmm. meaningful to me um something i keep thinking about is like black parents who lose their children to like unarmed senseless killings like that Mm -hmm. they become part of a of a a fraternity of sorts that they never thought they would Mm. be in you know what i'm saying and it's it's a tragic one you know and the type of you like it it's a particularly dark sense of empathy for someone to lose their child that way Mm -hmm. and for someone else to be like i know what that feels like you know what i'm saying like and I and I, I think that she wrote that not just to like me, you know, looking forward, but honestly as a as a aid and and a help to 
black mothers everywhere who yeah. who want to learn how do I pray for my son and hmm. or, or daughter, you know, yeah. in a world like this? How do I how do I make sense of any of this? Mm-hmm. And so I just I just found that super super poignant. Um, the thing she talked about when she was in college, like her professor that really yeah. um, helped her understand things and stuff like that, was really cool. Yeah. Because I. Dang it! And I hate that it's just like because it's the same for me. You know, I <laughs> I hate when I hate when people do that. But uh, when I was in when I was at Texas Tech, rack of strife for honor. Um, <laughs> when I was at Tech, I took a history of African American culture class, mm-hmm. and um, there was this prof- the, the professor of the class was just like really meaningful for me too. And um, I think that like i remember thinking man like this is so helpful you know Mm -hmm. but then i think of the systemic nature of like academia and like there are so many battles that professor and the one that austin had like there are probably battles that they had to fight just to get their voice Mm -hmm. heard um that we have not like you know it's just yeah yeah. so i think those things were all pretty tangible and the fact that uh when she talks about her name like Mm -hmm. um she talked when she talked about why her because she i think i think the tone was like confusion and kind of frustration was like why did my parents name me this or like you know um and it's truly because we don't want your name to to be what makes people know that you're black Mm -hmm. like it's it's truly like we want you to be able to get a job. We want you to be able to get into a good school. So we gave you a white male name yeah. because that's like a first foot in. And that is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, I remember like, <clears throat> I think that's on the, like kind of the back cover pitch of the, the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like page one. And even as mm-hmm. I read it, uh, like 20 minutes ago, read the author, mm-hmm. it felt like the kind of thing where I needed to be like, and by the way, Austin is not a white guy because when you hear the name Austin, you think, um, yeah. you know, white guy for the most part. And that's, um, that I thought the, the whole theme of her name throughout the book was like one of the more, um, heartbreaking emotional things is because it seems yeah. almost like, okay, it's kind of an intriguing story to start the book off. Like, Hey, mm-hmm. my name is Austin, but my parents named me that so that I could get a job interview. But then she talks about, like walking into job interviews or like sitting in the hallway, someone comes yeah. out and they they kind of look around. Nobody else is there. And they're like, are you Austin? And she's mm-hmm. like, yep. And then she, you know, kind of has to get ready to uh, yeah. surprise people in a way that they probably don't want or aren't ready for. And, you know, True. she describes seeing the people's faces like, uh, and kind of like mm-hmm. at one point she said, you know, she'll walk into a job interview and people will like see her and then be like, look down at the application and kind of flip through and think like, mm. man, did I, what, what did I think I was reading who, you know? Mm. And yeah, it seems like that whole idea of, um, that, that was, seems like the first, one of the first ways she became aware of like, well, the, I'm living in a world that doesn't necessarily, um, isn't like accustomed to, to people like me or, um, yeah. isn't here to help people like me as much. And, um, I thought that, yeah, the college professor, Seems like a classic book thing. College professor who saves the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that was super eye-opening. Because I feel like every, um, at least in my experience, most people go into college, they kind of have like four years of eye-opening, you know, in a lot of ways. They True. Learn things that Perspective aren't... granting. Yeah. And... yeah. And I think 
most of, most of my like surroundings and um, majority white areas, it seems like a lot of people leave college just more excited to like take on the world. They have like more hope. And yeah. it was um, hard to hear like in her, in her situation, it was more like she became more aware of like harsh realities, more aware of the, the hardness of life that mm-hmm. was ahead. Um, there's a quote yeah. I highlighted. She said, they told her, uh, one of the professors, Dr. Sims, we always told Dr. Sims that he ruined our lives. He made us so aware <laughs> of racial bias. We could no longer watch the news as leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she lists off a couple things that it seems like, you know, a musician or a, a film critic, like can never engage with those arts anymore because they're so critical. And those seem like so recreational compared to, no, now I'm aware of like how my race is going to impact the rest of my life. Yeah. And Dang. yeah, I thought that's pretty helpful. Cause yeah, I, I probably could have gone to college for four years and left just feeling better about life as a white person, in majority white yeah. area. Um, but yeah. I'm, well, and, and I think, I think something that was particularly not helpful, but just clarifying for me, mm-hmm. um, like personally, when I moved to Ames, I, I was not aware. I, I I was I was really not aware of how um, like white <laughs> Ames is um, or Iowa in general. Yeah. And so for for class for for one of my seminary classes, we had to know like a certain population uh, breakdowns, like like how how much of this race, how much you know, yeah. um, for one of my classes. And I looked up. Um, Ames and I, don't get me wrong. I didn't. I'm from Texas. Like <laughs> Donald Glover said, that's where they make white people. Like you know, I, I I I knew that Lubbock, Texas, wasn't the epicenter of diversity, but I wasn't aware of how how much you know wider it was in other places. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I looked up what it was in in Ames, and I think I really think that the African-American population in Ames is like 2.32 percent and of a a city that's like 60 when when Iowa State is in session you know uh that that's around 60 65 to 67,000 people um so that means and please like if if there are any math people that that reach out and and say that's incorrect I'm like you're right already like sorry but that that equals out to about 1500 people yeah 1500 people for a, a, a main, like a pretty sizable city is nothing, yeah. you know? And then I had a friend who's from Manchester, Iowa, and he said, he looked up his city. Um, and it, I think, I think he said like his city had like 20,000 people and the percentage was like point like 0.36%. He was like, that equals out to being like 35 people. Wow. You know, those are a lonely 35 people. That's probably genuine. Like, you think I'm playing? That's probably genuinely, like, three or four families. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so there's just ways that, like, um, that is deafening to people. You know what I'm saying? Even even if all you're dealing with, and it's sad for me to say all you're dealing with, even if all you're dealing with as a black person in Ames is racial ignorance and like implicit bias as as opposed to like here in texas you deal with like explicit racism like there's someone 
three doors down from me that has a confederate flag flying in the front of their yard um so that's like explicit racism so even if all you have is implicit bias and racial ignorance uh in aims that's still like extremely like suffocating Mm -hmm. at times you know and so in that in those in those moments you have you have a fork in the road where you either fight for your blackness fight for um for people around you to be aware of the plights of black people Mm -hmm. um or you just assimilate to white culture you know because you Mm -hmm. seek to you seek to look like the people around you in every single way except for the one way that you can't you know your 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 skin color yeah you know and and uh, i know for a long time i did the second one Mm -hmm. you know and so i don't even remember what you asked me but (laughs) that's that's what (laughs) that's just definitely what yeah i feel you know yeah i think I felt like the book was written um, really well kind of towards that end regarding like what's the difference between true diversity versus like assimilation Um, Mm -hmm. because I feel like it was written, um, you know, in the middle or near the end of like a big trend of uh, churches primarily, but, you know, across the nation of people Mm -hmm. like one of our values is going to be diversity or we're going to strive for diversity. And yeah, um, she, you know, really honestly not like really kind of lovingly not like aggressively but wanted to acknowledge like unless you acknowledge your whiteness then you're not going to actually help diversity because yeah you're kind of assuming like race is no thing there's no differences here we just gotta like hang out um yeah but like you said it's like if that's all we do then ultimately it becomes like um, black people or other minorities kind of have to forsake what they would like or what, what they come with in favor of the majority, um, experience. And, you know, she talked about like elementary school and high school where it was like, whether it was like just an example the teacher was using, like we all, you know, wash our hair every day or we all do whatever. Um, Oh man. So we can all agree. And the analogies. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like we all, you know, go skiing or something. (laughs) And I remember before she even said, I was like, I've never been skiing. And then she said, I've never been skiing. Yeah. Like legitimately like, yeah, it was, it was helpful for me because I was thinking like, man, when I was in elementary school, I assumed, you know, everybody probably lived about the same as me. And, um, Mm -hmm. that's probably just true of, you know, most of the white people in the room, but not, not other minorities. And, um, I was, it was like, man, that obviously it didn't dawn on me as a five-year-old, but even like thinking (laughs) back, I'm like, I don't know if I've thought through that about my elementary school and like simple things like metaphors and stuff like that. And it was like she in her high school or middle school, elementary school, whatever experience, it was kind of like, I had become aware and, and assimilated essentially to the white experience while nobody really had to, or seemed to care about becoming familiar with my experience. Yeah. I mean, and there are ways that so much of that is just like industry standard for most black people. Mm. Like there is probably not, whether they, they tell you or not, there, there's probably not a single black person, you know, Davis, that, that is, that is not bilingual. Maybe. Like the, the, the vernacular that I'm using with you right now, the, the great enunciation of words, the mm. great grammar, you know, all that yeah. stuff. 
nine times out of ten, that's not the way I speak to my grandmother. Hmm. Because if I did, she'd be like, are you a bill collector now? Like, what are you, <laughs> you know, like, what, yeah. why are you, you know, but legitimately this is the voice you you have to use hmm. to be taken seriously wow. in everyday america you know hmm. and there are just so many things like that where black people it it, it becomes just inherent hmm. to uh, i mean a term that is used often in black circles is like um code switching yeah and like i that like legitimately you you don't know any black people that don't do that. Wow. Even if they're not African American, even if they're African, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And it's just because we know that like who we are in in and of our 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 natural functioning selves just will not be accepted. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, especially in a world or in a country not made for us. You know. Yeah. No, I, I think I mean I remember in the book one of the early examples of her realizing that. Um, I think it was around the same time of the school examples, but she talks about mm-hmm. going to Cleveland, I think with her mom for the summer yes. and yeah, it was the first time that she was in a neighborhood of mostly black people compared to mm-hmm. usually being surrounded by white people. And she talked about how she, you know, it's kind of like her own journey of discovery. Cause growing up around white people, she kind of just became like the white people that she was surrounded by. Yes. And then one of the quotes was like, she went to these this black neighborhood and she felt like she didn't fit in, but she also felt like she didn't fit in back home because of her yeah. skin. So she's like, so I'm too black for the white people and I'm too yeah. white for the black people. And it was like, kind of like you're saying, there seems to be like, yeah, two languages, two um, situations mm-hmm. that she find herself in. Um, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's the kind of thing where I'm, I'm reading this. And I'm like, I'm pretty thankful for, like you said, like a voice like hers that would speak up about yeah. this. Cause yeah, as a white person in a majority white culture that doesn't even like acknowledge, for the most part, um, that especially historically that it's like a, a white culture. It's like, mm-hmm. man, I could just live my whole life and never realize this. Yeah, um, especially in a place like Iowa. Oh yeah, and this is not. I mean, it's literally because it's I like it's not because like you know people like in their cornfields are like keep the black people out like they're not like that's not it it's just yeah. it's just a very like most of the midwest is just a pretty mm-hmm. like white place yeah. you know what i'm saying like it just it just is like black people um historically post slavery post reconstruction post jim crow south like um you know like deliberately went to bigger metroplex type areas um to be able to find jobs and things like that and so Ames and Des Moines, they're great, but they're not that, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And so it makes it like, you know, it, it two plus two equals four, you know? Yeah. And I felt like the book was especially helpful in, in this context because, um, a lot of her examples of, um, challenging white people that she's like interacted with, it's, it's not like, like you said, it's not explicit, like racism, yeah. like, um, you know, like it, it'd be easy to rule that out of, um, yeah. most of Iowa. It's like, well, we're not like primarily like aggressively mean or something, but you know, she deals with all these examples of people who are just kind of subconsciously used to whiteness and don't, yeah. haven't been told to like acknowledge it or haven't been open. I haven't had their eyes open to that. And mm-hmm. so I thought that was pretty helpful. What, what did you feel like, um, as you read, cause you said a little yeah. bit how it's like, yeah, no, um, every person has had experiences like, um, mm-hmm. Austin, um, 
How'd you, how'd you feel like reading that about these, you know, implicit bias experiences she's had as well as like her response to it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, especially like genuinely, especially when she walks through her work day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I cannot remember if she said that explicitly or if it's just like, I, like, I think I wrote it in the margins or something, but like, I remember writing that is exhausting. Yeah. Um, and literally she's just trying to like work, you know what I'm saying? Like, but, but everything she does makes a statement about black people, whether the white people around her acknowledge it or not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so she's like, Oh, well, I have to, I have to go by and say hi for her birthday, mm-hmm. you know, to that way. I don't seem like I'm singling myself out or, you know, yeah. and it's just like, you wouldn't think twice if, if a white person did that, you just think, Oh, like mm-hmm. Jim just has a lot of stuff to work on or whatever, <laughs> you know, but there's such the, the, the cultural trope of like the angry black woman that mm-hmm. she's like, no, I have to, I have to do two, yeah. three steps forward to prove like, no, I'm just regular everyday person. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that, that should not, uh, I don't mean to make any type of like objective or subjective <laughs> statement, but like, like she legitimately is just trying to prove her humanness. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. um, and, and I remember I read that, that section of that chapter two or three times because like it just like it really covered like what it's like to be at least me i don't know about other black women mm-hmm. but what it's like to be me in a lot of the places i've worked yeah. throughout my life mm-hmm. you know um and yeah, yeah. so I, I i can't say anything but that i just readily like it was like literally she was reading my life back to me mm-hmm. you know yeah no, yeah, I think that I think that was, um, yeah. For people listening who haven't read the book, she she pretty much takes like three or four pages and mm-hmm. just like almost like a script to a movie, like walks through her like an average day at work, and it's like nine a.m. I do this, nine ten a.m. And yeah, it's it's pretty eye opening because like we've said a little bit, it's not like anybody in the workplace was like aggressively being racist towards her. It's mm-hmm. more like a glimpse into just what is going through her mind as she tries to maneuver a world, like she says, a world made for whiteness. And, um, oh. yeah, man, that was eye opening to read just cause it's like, it seems, you know, as a white person, it seems like, well, if I'm not being aggressively racist, I'm doing the right thing to getting the job done, whatever. But, yeah. um, yeah, it just opened my, my eyes to like, yeah, there's a lot more going on in the mind of a black person surrounded by white people mm-hmm. than, than I would, I would think, you know? Heck yeah. What? I mean, they're, Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to switch subject. You can say what you're going to say. Um, I do not remember. <laughs> I am sorry. Great. Well, then I will switch the subject. Um, <laughs> maybe going towards like the end of the book a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. she talks a little bit about like her, I mean, there's a whole chapter about like her anger, I guess. And mm-hmm. almost how she digests like, okay, yeah. I feel angry and it doesn't seem like, it feels like I should feel angry, you know? I mean, she's a mm-hmm. Christian, um, yeah. but also just in terms of like general morality, she's, she kind of tries to explain why she feels okay with being yeah. angry at the injustice mm-hmm. and the situations that she finds herself in. And then she, like I said, kind of unpacks the hope she wants to feel, the hope she doesn't feel, um, mm-hmm. and all that. So yeah, it kind of turns from like, here's my experiences. Here's how I feel now. 
and how I think we should go forward. How did, how did you um, feel reading that? How do you kind of unpack those same feelings? Yeah. Um, I thought it was helpful. I thought it was practical the way that she speaks about like, no, like this, like, I think, I, I think there's, there's a, there's a, a strong trend of like when black people get really angry about something to, to mask it as like, I'm frustrated by, or I'm confused by, or I'm uncertain about, you know, or saddened by, and, and all those things are part of it. But like, for people that know the Enneagram, I am an eight. <laughs> Anger is just like the 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 lower crust of mm-hmm. who I am sometimes. <laughs> you know, and, and there are times when I'm like, no, I am I am not confused. I am not uncertain. I am sad, but more than anything else, I am mad. Mm-hmm. I am angry. I am furious. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I and the for the fact that her the, the fact that she said like for herself like i had to accept like that's fair yeah you know what i'm saying like to be angry because it angers god like yeah. to, to be angry because genuinely to to know like god's heart for all his people mm-hmm. um means to know that like it shouldn't be this way mm-hmm. you know yeah. um so i i think that i think I directly identify with the agreeable nature with which she talked about anger, but then also ultimately to agree with like, but I ultimately trust God. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, there's, there's this pastor that he wasn't speaking about racial injustice, but he, he was just talking about suffering in general. And he said that no one is more long suffering than God. Mm-hmm. And I, I took it, you know, from that Sunday or whatever mm-hmm. to really like relate to like, racial stuff like racial matters for myself because like it helps me to to be anchored by the fact that like god knows and he sees and he's not silent Hmm. and the ultimate injustice is sin like the ultimate injustice of anything i go through as a minority or anything um anyone goes through it's genuinely because this world is, is, is broken, you know, and the sickness is sin, you know? And so I think that the way she talks about it is super personal, personal, but also I, I think that she is on the same journey. A lot of black people, including myself are like, okay, be, it's like, uh, like our pastor, uh, at Cornerstone talking about being brutally honest while trying to have faith filled hope. Yeah. You know, um, even though like the brutal honesty can lead you down some very righteously or, or reasonably, I won't say righteously, mm-hmm. but like reasonably angry places. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I thought, I, I mean, yeah, the book, I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying. That was super eye opening to me. The book wasn't like theological, which I actually kind of enjoyed. No, yeah. Like, yeah. Here's a perspective and I'm just going to talk about what I've experienced. And mm-hmm. but one of the places where she talks about the, the Bible is when she's unpacking anger and she talks about the example of Jesus um, in the temple, like flipping tables. He has yes. a whip. And, you know, she talks about how Christians love to talk about love, like God is love. Mm-hmm. And, but too often love becomes like um, just kind of aloof, I think was the word she mm-hmm. used, like pretty empty. Like love is being nice, 
which is, that's kind of where we like simmer it down to. But she says, um, a quote that I highlighted, I'm just going to read it. Cause I, I think her words Please. say it better, but, um, this idea of like, you know, God's love isn't just like nice and going to speak with a soft word, you know? Um, so what she says is she says, this aloof kind of love is useless to me. I need a love that is troubled by injustice, a love that is provoked to anger when black folks, including our children, lie dead in the streets, a love that can no longer be concerned with tone because it is concerned with life, a love that has no tolerance for hate, no excuses for racist decisions, no contentment in the status quo. I need a love that is fierce in its resilience and sacrifice. I need a love that chooses justice. And I was like, man, that feels, I thought of first Corinthians 13, the very like famous love passage yeah. from weddings, like love is patient, love's kind, it bears all things. And, you know, I felt like her paragraph along with first Corinthians 13, those are like complimentary. Those are actually like what the love of God looks like. It's not a love that stands idly by as injustice just rolls, you know? Um, yeah. it's a love that like is troubled by it. It's a love that like, I love the sentence that it can no, can no longer be concerned with tone cause it's concerned with mm -hmm. life. It's like, there's a, a, a greater thing on the line. And I felt that was convicting to me cause I'm like, you know, suburban Iowa. Mm -hmm. I feel like I see that a lot, the kind of Christian idea mm -hmm. of love. Um, but I think the Bible paints a better, a better picture. Like she pointed out. Yeah. And I, I dang that, that's a really good excerpt to have read because like that type of love is not easy. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's not convenient. Yeah. And I think that it requires both patience and urgency mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I feel like that's one of the biggest um, like if there were like a moral of the story or a lesson that I feel like I've learned reading this book and, um, between the world and the other books like it, I feel like, like you said, that, that kind of a love like costs something. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as a white person, I realizing like, okay, this, this is a world made for whiteness. It seems mm -hmm. like if I actually want diversity or like unity of of all races, of, of all people groups, all these things. It's like that, that's going to come at my cost. Like I have to mm. sacrifice the privileges, the, the things mm -hmm. that I'm experiencing. If I want other people to, to, um, experience, you know, real freedom as a person in God's creation. Um, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's one thing to say, I want diversity to be a value of my organization that doesn't cost anything to like add that to the list, but mm -hmm. it, it does cost something to, to sacrifice, um, you know, True. my privileges or whatever. And so that's, that's pretty eye opening. I think, you know, it's, it feels like that's, that's what you actually need to put front in, in front of white people to say like, do you want a diverse church? Do you want a diverse workplace? Mm -hmm. Then this is what it's going to take. And it's going to be a process of, of listening and of pain and of um, humility, you know, uh, yeah, I feel like I don't have this quote up here, but there was one quote that she said that I feel like I'll hold on to of, um, I'm just going to scroll and find it. I probably can't, 
<laughs> I oh. probably can't take it. Um, yeah, I don't know. But she she talks about how you know this process of listening and of um, learning about uh, the current state and like hearing um, her pain as a black person. It's not like the end of the road to justice and to restoration. It's like the beginning. And I I think a temptation as a white person is to like read a book like this or a couple books and think like, mm-hmm. sweet, I got it. Like I'll be a nice person from now on or something. Yeah. Um, but it was a good reminder for me, like, okay, this is like 1% of the way there, for, yeah. you know? So, so it's yeah. to avoid the temptation of reading this book and thinking like, well, cool. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> I got it. Down. I, I am now fully ready to dismantle <laughs> the institution of racism. Iowa doesn't even know what's about to hit him. <laughs> I just imagine you going to like Menards or something. <laughs> and they're like, what can we help you find today? And you're like, equality. And they're like, well, I'll, maybe that's by the light fixture. I don't know. I, <laughs> I just got my Kindle in my hand and I'm like, you don't even know what's about to hit you. I don't know why. I'd imagine you'd be wearing like a black turtleneck. They're like, sir, it is hot outside. <laughs> like, you don't have it to. Summer. It is summertime, man. But it's true. Like, I mean, a lot of a lot of people read books about not just race, but anything. And you think, man, like this taught me so much. I am ready to just take mm-hmm. on, you know, the mantle of like fighting for injustice in this way or fighting for something in this way. I think that's. I think that's why college is such a a transformational place for people is because yeah. it's the first time that your zeal for something in, in, you know, in the realm of like college ministry that we do, we hope that thing is Jesus, but it's, it's the first time that your zeal for something, um, can be matched by the opportunity to do something about it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that is genuine. That's genuinely one of the first times in your entire life that you're like, man, like I really want to get behind this thing. And there's like mm. a club for it or a cause for it or a class for it or yeah. a major toward it, you know? Um, but like I said, like, we hope that I think it's Jesus for, for, you know, college students, but like for, for a lot of people, it's like uh, any myriad of things. Mm -hmm. Um, but that can be a very empowering feeling, but then you also learn, I'm just one person. Like I, out of 8 billion, I am just one person. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's still like, you can do a lot more than what you think you can. I can do a lot more than what I think I can, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's great. Maybe a final question here. Mm-hmm. What, or wait, how do I phrase this? Who do you think should read this book? And what would you, what would you say to them? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, honestly, um, anyone should read it because it's perspective granting and it's like, you know, a story like someone's story that I feel like anyone can be helped by. But specifically, I think people who are in predominantly white spaces, Mm -hmm. both evangelical and secular should read it Um, and read it in groups, Um, like read it along with like, you know, anywhere Mm -hmm. from one other person like you and the other person or up to like groups of 10, because it's something that ushers you into dialogue of some sort. You know, and so I would say, like, read it, whether you like, whether you go to church or not, 
Um, but definitely if you're a Christian that like wants to be used by God to help racial reconciliation progress in our country. Um, I I think, I think you should read it and and not just white people, like black people should read it because one, it'll help you know you're not crazy. (laughs) And two, it will help you know that like, there's hope to be had, Mm -hmm. you know, like literally what you're talking about, like being in the shadow of hope, like that's still somewhat hopeful, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because um, it it shows you that this is like a long tunnel thing. Like, like there's a lot of darkness on, on like through this journey, but God is the one pushing you through the turn, the tunnel. He's the one walking with you in it. Mm. And he's the light at the end of it, you know, and whether it be a light that you experience or your children or your children's children experience, like it's worth it to, to take that journey, you know? So I I genuinely recommend it to anybody because one is short (laughs) Um, for people that are like, I don't like to read. Well, okay. Ian, like you, it's eight, (laughs) one, like literally you read it 10 minutes a night, you're done in like two weeks. I promise. And so, and then I, I just think it's, it's helpful, you know? Um, so I would recommend it to anyone, but particularly, um, people within the church, black, white, anything like, you know, any, uh, ethnic background, um, that want to learn, um, about race more, want to learn about perspectives of someone who, you know, sees America differently. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's great. I would ditto that. <laughs> Lit. I think, uh, I think your note about even like using it as a dialogue starter is especially helpful. Um, oh, yeah, I feel you. like I learned a lot just reading from her, but I think also even just like this conversation as, a, as an example has helped it like sink deeper as opposed to um, just kind of reading it and carrying on, you know. So yeah, yeah. read it with somebody else. Start a book club. Make Heck a podcast, yeah. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Legitimately, they're like, "Oh my gosh, Davis did this. I'll do this." <laughs> and it's just like just one episode. <laughs> yeah, don't Make don't come for my market. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to chat about one of your favorite books, Persia. Heck yeah! Thank you for asking me. I literally, once again, really love talking about things that I have read or studied or anything and so this was a great experience yeah it's been a pleasure i feel like i've like i just said i think this opened up the book in a even more helpful way than just just reading so thanks persia heck yeah thanks for tuning in to the series premiere of books my friends like Our next episode features one of my closest friends from childhood and high school, and we discuss his favorite novel, a Pulitzer Prize winning World War II epic that follows two teenagers from opposite sides of the war and leads up to the moment that their stories ultimately collide. 